Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, the passage we are looking at this morning. We'll actually be looking at the entire chapter, but we'll focus on verses 18 through 25. Please give your full attention to God's holy, inerrant, transformative word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. During this Advent season, as we look forward to celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been looking at the historical accounts of that birth as they are found in the Gospel according to Matthew and the Gospel according to Luke. And our specific focus, as we said last week, is upon those sinners like you and me, those sinners saved by grace, who were caught up in this great event, who were the front row witnesses to God's most important and most remarkable intervention in the history of mankind. And our particular focus is upon their faith. The way that they responded by a true God-given faith to the events that surrounded them. As I said last week, this is a follow-up to the study we went through this fall in the book of James. And as we commented many times during those studies in the book of James, When James wrote that letter, his concern was to show what real, sincere, genuine, God-given faith looks like in relation to a false faith, a hypocritical faith, recognizing that in the church we have both. In the visible church we have those who have true faith and also those who claim to have faith, but yet their life does not give the evidence of faith. Over and over again in the book of James, we are told that true faith, God-given faith, works. It produces good works. It does right things. That faith is a gift from God that leads to a transformation from within ourselves. This astounding transformation, this supernatural transformation that happens from the heart out is astounding enough when you see it 
at any stage of life. But it's especially amazing grace when you see it take place at the end of a life, in the later years. When someone experiences that faith for the first time near the end of their life. I watched this transformation up close and personal as when I was a child being raised by a father who claimed to have faith, who was a part of the church, who as a matter of fact, he was actually a leader. He was a, on the council of our liberal small town church. And yet we who knew him, who lived with him, saw him day and out, did not see, as I now in hindsight look back, did not see evidence of that faith in his life. He was a good guy by worldly standards, but there was not evidence of a real trusting relationship with God in the way he thought, the attitudes he had, and the way he lived. When we saw him at home, when we saw him at work, when we saw him in the community, it did not reflect what he said he believed on Sunday mornings. That was the dad I knew, that was the father I grew up with. But then several years after I moved away from home, my uncle, my father's brother, died suddenly of a heart attack. And my dad was very close to his brother and this shook him to his core. And it instigated within him a spiritual search for answers. He suddenly realized that who he had been and what he had believed was not enough. And so as he went along in his spiritual search, one of my siblings who was also a believer recognized an opportunity. And so my sibling gave to him the Bible on cassette, a set of cassettes, tapes. Those are tapes with, you know, Anyway, I won't explain if you don't know what cassette tapes are. But anyway, gave him the Bible on cassette so that he could listen to the Word of God. Because my dad was a blue-collar guy. I never saw him read a book in my life. He'd, he'd read the newspaper, but that was the only reading I ever saw him do. And my sibling recognized that, and so she gave him the Bible on cassette so he could listen to it. And my dad was newly retired, didn't know what to do with his time, and so he sat there for hours upon hours every day listening to God's Word being read to him. And over the course of many months, we family members began to see profound change in him. His heart softened. He had a genuine desire to go to church to worship. He had a deep desire to read the word of God, or to hear the word of God, to pray. And we saw in him a new love for God and a love for others that hadn't been there before. We saw a new ability to forgive and to be forgiven by others. And a lot of healing that went on inside of him. And we saw a hope in him that hadn't been there before. As I think about the gift of faith that God gave to my dad in his later years, after he had been so set in his ways, after his heart seemed so hard, how God gave him that gift of faith and how it transformed him, and I think about my life, and I think about the lives of so many of you. And I think about what Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to his student Timothy. In his second letter to Timothy, in the first chapter, this is what Paul says. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. 
He speaks of faith the way that I think we should see it. It was a gift. It's somehow an entity, kind of, so to speak, separate from them that wasn't a part of them that came within them and transformed them from the inside out. Timothy and his mother and his grandmother. Paul recognized that faith because he knew that same faith in his own heart. This kind of sincere faith, as Paul calls it, this genuine faith, this faith that is a true gift from God, that's what we're looking for in these key players in the birth of Jesus Christ. Last week, Mary. This week, Joseph. Next week, we'll look at the shepherds. And then finally, we'll look at the wise men. And we will see how they responded with a true, sincere, genuine faith, which was a gift from God. And by doing so, it's my prayer that all of us, beginning with me, but that all of us would be strengthened in our faith and encouraged in our faith. So what does Joseph teach us about true faith? Well, like we said about Mary last week, Joseph was an unremarkable man. He was just a blue-collar guy, a carpenter, who was unremarkable in his life. We know nothing that was exceptional about him. And we wouldn't know of him at all if these events hadn't taken place within his life. He was living a mundane life in a hard-scrabble town called Nazareth. But suddenly his life got caught up in this majestic plan of redemption, this great act of God. He didn't ask for it. He didn't look for it. It, it just dropped into his life. And his response to it shows us that his faith was real. It was genuine. As we said last week, Mary and Joseph, at this point, where we pick up the story here in Matthew 1, they're betrothed. And I just kind of defined that by reference last week, but, but I want to dwell on that a little more this week. What does it mean that they were betrothed? Well, again, you have to put yourself back in that culture and not think like we think. We, we tend to, each of us as individuals, go out and we look for somebody that's attractive to us for whatever reasons and we find one we like and we grow in a relationship and then we make a semi-commitment, this idea of engagement. I'm committed to you, but I still have an out if I want it. I, don't, I guess that's what engagement is. And you're engaged for a while, then after a while, you make a real commitment, hopefully a lifelong commitment. And that's how we view that process. Well, back in the days of scripture, it didn't work that way. It, back then, there was still arranged marriages in most cultures, and it was true in biblical cultures as well, that it was typically the groom's parents who would pick the suitable bride for their sons. And so after, the, and of course they would receive input from their sons. They were, they hopefully were good parents that valued the input of their sons, likes, dislikes, whatever. And then they would go, after they'd identified that young woman in town, they would go and they would go to the parents of the bride and they would negotiate with the parents of the bride a bride price. The idea was that since the young woman with the bride would become part of the husband's family's household, they would pay a price of compensation. They would lose their daughter to the other family, and so they would be paid a bride price. And once they had decided what the bride price was, then they would close the deal, and at the closing of the deal, so to speak, the young man, the woman, the bride, and the groom, they would take very serious, solemn, lifelong vows to one another. And the vows they took were what we would call the vows of marriage. They were committed to one another for the rest of their lives, for, good or for better or for worse. But what was unique, at that point, they are 
truly in a very real sense husband and wife, but they are a betrothed couple. They were not to come together for at least a year. And during that year, the idea is that the wife, the bride, would go back to live in her home just as she had been living, but the, the groom would go out and earn the bride price. He'd work hard to save up the bride price so that it could be paid at the end of that year. And then once the bride price was paid at the end of the year, then they would, he would take her into his home, into his family complex, take her into his home, and the marriage would be consummated, and they would be truly together for the rest of their lives. That's the way it was supposed to work. And so Mary and Joseph were betrothed. They were committed to get one another for life like husband and wife, but they had not yet come together. They had not lived together. They had not had sexual relations with one another. And so that is the context of betrothal. I want to just pause for a second, and maybe you've never thought about it, but Scripture would have us contemplate how we already know that the great metaphor of the scriptures is that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. But have you ever thought that it's under the old system, not our current system, that that is work? We don't go out looking for Christ. We would never do that in and of ourselves. We are chosen for Christ, and we are betrothed to Christ. And really, in a very real sense, that's what his first coming was. His first coming was to, for us to be betrothed to him. We belong to him forever. But yet, we're in a betrothal period. He has gone to heaven. And he will come again. And when he comes again, we will, he will take us to himself. And we will be with him in fullness, in perfection for all eternity. That's why it talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb at his second coming, not his first coming. The wedding feast... The feast of the fullness of the relationship comes when he returns to make all things perfect and to be fully united with his people. This is the language, just to show it to you, this is the language that was used. Hosea, of all the prophets of the Old Testament, Hosea typified this metaphor of the coming Messiah, the Christ, being the bridegroom and the church or the Israel or the people of God being the bride. He he lived this out in many ways. And so listen to what, how God describes himself and his relationship with the church in Hosea chapter 2. I'll begin with verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And then down to verse 19. And I will betroth you to, my, to me, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And so that was the promise, is that there'd be that kind of a relationship. We are that committed for eternity, and yet we still look for the fullness of our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ as his people. Remember what Jesus said just before he returned to heaven. He said, I am going to prepare a place for you. And I will return, I will come back to you, and I will take you to myself, and I will be with you forever. Is that not the language of betrothal? That's our relationship with Christ. So here, that is the relationship that Mary and Joseph had. And in verse 18, we see that as a betrothed, godly man, Joseph's life suddenly falls apart. He found out that Mary had become pregnant. Can you imagine how life-shattering that news was to Joseph? 
As a human being, there's only one conclusion to that. He had not been with her. That meant somebody else had. That she had been unfaithful to him. That meant that he had been betrayed. That he had been rejected. That he not only had been, but will be humiliated. It says that Joseph was a man who was a, a man of God who was both just and merciful. I love how he reflects the character of God in the way that he, by faith, responds to this terrible trial that he's facing. He says, he, basically at that point, he had two options. Now, we don't know at this point whether Mary had tried to tell him what the angel had told her. We don't even know where in chronology this all is. It's possible that Mary had tried to tell him, no, no, it's not like that. You're not going to believe how I really became pregnant. And he says, well, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way. So either she tried to tell him and he had rejected it, or she just hadn't told him or hadn't had the opportunity to tell him yet what the angel had told her. But at any rate, his only conclusion was she had been unfaithful and it had to be dealt with. But he wanted to deal with it in a just way, but also a merciful way. And so before Joseph, he had two options. The first option was to take Mary publicly to court and show that she was pregnant, therefore she had been unfaithful, and she would bear the consequences, and he could vindicate his own name. Or, now you may be asking, what about death penalty? Because in the Old Testament, adulterers and adulteresses were to put, be put to death. But by this time, since Israel didn't basically oversee its own law, it was under other foreign powers and authorities much of the time, and also just through all their pharisaical additions to the law, basically that had been, they provided so many large loopholes that death penalty was rarely instigated, rarely put in place. And so what they had come up with was a, a, a bill of divorce, so that a husband, if he found his wife to be um, unclean, and usually means unfaithful, he could put the, his uh, betrothed wife or his real wife away uh, through a bill of divorce. And so they would sign this in front of a couple of witnesses and they, the woman would be put away quietly. In other words, not on full display of the whole community, but secretly. And so being both a just and a merciful man, having both a concern for the law of God and upholding justice, but also a concern to be, have compassion for Mary because he loved her, he decided to write her a bill of divorce. That was the decision that he had come to. And you get a sense that he's basically tossing and turning on his bed one night, wrestling with the decision he's made, wrestling with the pain, the humiliation, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him. In the dark night of his soul, this bright light comes breaking into his life. The angel of the Lord appears to him, and his life is going to change forever. And I want to see how, I want you to see how his faith informed his response. It's because the Lord had given him this gift of real faith, he responded the way he did. And the first thing we see is that true faith rests upon God's promises. Because that's where, that's where Matthew's mind goes as he writes this account. That's where Joseph's mind immediately went. Don't miss the significance of how the angel addresses Joseph. He says to him, the angel says, Joseph, son of David. Son of David. That's a very important title to lay on lowly carpenter Joseph. You are a son of David. And we know the significance of this to both Joseph and Matthew because of the way this chapter begins. 
the first 17 verses of chapter 1 are all a genealogy. The book begins with verse 1 saying, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here, the angel is tying Joseph together with the Messiah. The Messiah would be the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so from that, from verse 1 and through verse 17, what Matthew does is he gives the family tree of Abraham. He begins with Abraham 2,000 years earlier than Joseph's day. And it proceeds down through, every, through most generations. He doesn't actually include every generation. But he includes most generations down through King David 1,000 years earlier. And then down to Joseph's generation. This is a family tree, but it's not about genetics. It's about God's promise. That it was Abraham's family who had received the promise from God. And it goes back to that concept of marriage. God had established a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And through you and your people, I am going to send one who will be a blessing to all nations. That's the gospel as it was given through Abraham to his family. And so this genealogy traces it down all the way through. Some people in this genealogy were great men of faith. Some were not. But still the promise of God had been fulfilled. If anybody ever asked you to summarize the history of the world, just give them four words and explain them to them hopefully. Four words. First of all, this is the history of the world. Can be explained by creation? God created this universe perfect and glorious, reflecting his glory. Second word is fall. Mankind, who was the crown of God's creation, created in his image, rebelled against God's authority, in pride exalted himself, and disobeyed, and therefore was cast out of paradise and perfection and every human being from that point on was born a sinner under the guilt of Adam's sin and also under the power of sin helpless to save himself third word is redemption God in his grace did not leave mankind in that estate of sin and misery but promised to send a redeemer and that promise that one would come who would somehow do away with the guilt and the power of sin, reconcile sinful man to the holy and just God that he has offended, and establish a kingdom of obedient people to serve him forever, that this Redeemer would one day come, this seed of Abraham, this son of David would come to reign over God's kingdom and to restore all things. And that's the fourth word, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The promise is that one day this redeemer would make all things perfect again. And sin and death and all the consequences of sin will be put away once and for all. That is That gospel promise is what this genealogy is all about. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer who would come to reconcile and to restore all things. Those with true faith 
are the ones who waited for this Redeemer, who looked for this Redeemer for centuries, for generations. But you notice how Matthew foreshadows where the Redeemer comes into the family tree. Did you notice that? This whole genealogy, it's, it's, if, you have, if you're familiar with the old King James, it's the begots. You know, so-and-so begot, so-and-so, and so-and-so begot, so-and-so. You know, in the way the ESV is, became the father of. That's the way it's told all the way down until you get to Joseph. There's no begot when it comes to Joseph, because jo Joseph didn't do any begetting when it came to the line of the Messiah. Look at the language, look at the exact words that Matthew uses in verse 16. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Right there you have the mystery of the virgin birth. That Mary gave birth to Jesus, but Joseph was not the father. Joseph became the adoptive father of the Messiah. But he was not the natural father. He became the legal father as the adoptive father of the Messiah. And so that's why Matthew gives the lineage through Joseph. Interestingly, if you go to the Gospel of Luke, he gives it through Mary. So through both lines, he was a son of David. But this would be an extraordinary birth. As the angel explained it to Joseph, the angel said, That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will be the Redeemer, the promised Redeemer. The, word, the name Jesus that we're familiar with is actually a uh, transliteration of the Latin translation of the Greek, which is a translation of the Hebrew, which is the original Hebrew word is Yeshua or Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh, the covenant God of the Old Testament, is the one who saves. Jesus came to redeem, to save. Jesus was conceived within and carried by and delivered by Mary, but Joseph was not his natural father. This was like a big flashing red light in the genealogy. This miraculous birth was the birth of the Messiah. God had promised it, and God was fulfilling it in the days of Joseph, and Joseph would get a front row seat. Look at verse 23 to confirm the promise. Matthew writing here, this is probably the words of Matthew, just summarizing this event. Matthew writes about what happened over 700 years ago in Israel. Back be just before the exile, what happened was that King Ahaz was the son of David. You'll see him in verse 9 in the genealogy. King Ahaz was an evil king. And he had led Judah, which was the group of Israel that was the line of the line of promise at that day, that he had led them astray and they were coming under judgment and there were two kings coming against them and they were threatening to wipe the Ahaz and his family line and Judah off the map. And so the prophet Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and he says, God has offered to give you a sign that he has promised to deliver his people. He will not allow you to be destroyed. So ask any sign you want. And Ahaz, because he didn't want to submit to the Lord, he'd already decided to trust in Assyria instead. 
he says, no, I don't want any sign. And so Isaiah says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And that's what Matthew quotes in verse 23. That a virgin was going to give birth. And his name will be, not Jesus, Emmanuel. Well, did Isaiah and the prophecy get it wrong? Did he get the virgin birth right but the name wrong? No, because Emmanuel is not what the name he was literally given. Emmanuel was his purpose, to be God with us. God coming to save his people. God dwelling in the midst of his people. You see, this is the promise that Matthew believed. This is the promise that kept the generations seeking after God for centuries. And Joseph is being told that in your day, in your era, but more importantly, in your very family, the Redeemer is going to be born. You're not going to have anything to do with it. It's going to be a miraculous birth. It's going to be a virgin birth. Because this one who is born to Mary is going to be both God and man, conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully God and fully man. See, the point I'm making here about faith, real faith, is it is based upon promises. Real faith lives by the promises that God has made. Hypocritical faith does not. Everybody lives by faith. Whether you believe in the Bible, whether you believe in Jesus Christ, whether you don't believe in any religion, you still live by promises. You can't face your life without promises. You live your life based on the promises that others have made to you, promises your parents have made to you, promises your spouse has made to you, promises your banker made to you, promises your insurers have made to you, promises your investment brokers have made to you. Everybody lives by promises. But those with true faith, this gift from God that transforms the life from within, are those who live by the promises that God has given. And what better time of year to be reminded that we need to live by the promises of God, not by the promises of man. That our hope is built on the promises of God, not the promises of man. That brings us to the second step that we see in the life of Joseph, which is that true faith believes the promises, therefore true faith obeys. In verse 24, it says, When Joseph woke up from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife to himself. He heard the word of God through the angel. He believed the word of God. He trusted in the promise of God's word, and therefore he immediately obeyed. Trusting in the promise leads to obedience. And as we saw last week, this didn't mean an easy life for Joseph. To take Mary into his home was to take her public uh, disgrace in the eyes of the world into his home and upon himself. And Mary's suffering as the mother of the Messiah would become his suffering as well. But James tells us that faith works. Faith obeys. Your life is changed because you have new promises to live by, promises from God... And living by these promises produces an obedience that changes your life. Obedience that is driven 
by hope and trust in promises is an entirely type, different type of obedience than obedience that is produced by any sense of obligation or duty. Obedience driven by faith is obedience that comes from being able to see truth for what it is. And that brings me to the final point. That as we see in Joseph, true faith enables us to see the unseen. True faith enables us to see the unseen. You see, Joseph had no physical evidence when he woke up from that dream that any of this was true. You know what it's like to wake up from a dream. For a few moments there, you wonder what was true and what wasn't. You know, and, and I, this was a different kind of dream. This was a revelatory dream, certainly much more real and tangible than the kind of dreams that we have. But still, he woke up and his life hadn't changed. He was no different. Physically speaking, his life was no different. His job was no different. Mary was no different. Mary was still pregnant. And he had no way of determining how that conception had taken place in Mary's womb. All he had was the word of God. But because of his faith, he could see that what the word of God said to him was true and he could base his life upon it. Herman Ritterboss, a commentator, said this. He said, the miracle that stood behind the conception of the Messiah in the womb of Mary, that's what he's referring to, the miracle that stood behind it was hidden and unprovable, and it could be recognized only by the light of special revelation. And as I read that statement, I thought, you know, that was certainly true about the virgin birth of Christ. You couldn't prove it. Nobody could prove it, not even in that day. The same was largely true of the cross of Jesus Christ. What was really happening at the cross of Jesus Christ when he died for the sins of God's people, you would have no physical evidence to show that it was true. Yes, he would be raised from the dead, but interestingly, he only showed himself to those who already believed. The world would have no physical evidence. We talk about the empty tomb, but the world came up with their own explanation for that. It's the word of God that enables us to understand the significance of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ as well as the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. True faith accepts God's word because true faith is that ability to see that it's true. And you say, how do you get that? You don't work it up on your own. It's a gift. God has to give that sight to you. We are born spiritually blind. We are blind to spiritual truth. We can see what's physically true around us but we cannot see spiritual truth. Once we were blind, but now by God's grace, because of the gift of faith that he gives from above, we can see. And what we see by faith is what drives our choices and our actions in life. Let's think about this in relation to even just the physical realm, how in my lifetime we've seen such advances in the scientific world that over the last century or two, couple of centuries, think about how much we, many decisions we make and how many, how many things we do in life are based on things we can't see, but what science tells us is true. I mean, because of the gift of science, we are able to look at the, at the uh, microscopic level and far beyond that, at the molecular level. We're, at the, you know, we're, we're able to look so deep into things that we can't see with our physical eyes, and then we come up with technologies and medicines that are based on the fact that those things we can't see are real and true. And it's made our lives so much better and easier and comfortable. Well, what we're talking about is the ability to see spiritual truth. 
the ability to see beyond the physical, beyond the microscopic, beyond the astronomical, to see what is spiritually true, to see who God really is, to see who we really are, to see what God is doing in the world, to see who Jesus Christ is and how he came to redeem us by dying on the cross for our sins. I thought of this passage from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to what he says. He talks about how he received that sight. Remember, he was blinded so that he might see spiritually on the road to Damascus. And here is how Paul talks about that experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, Paul's saying the same thing. He now sees Christ with the eyes of faith that he didn't have before the road to Damascus. He sees him as God's son, as the Redeemer. I was reminded also of Hebrews chapter 11, which speaks of the genuine faith of the people of the Old Testament. A long list of people who had genuine faith, a gift from above, from God, and how it changed their lives. But it begins with a definition of faith. And I particularly, I don't often quote the NIV because I prefer the ESV's translation, but the NIV actually, I like the way they translate because I think the meaning comes, is more clear. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, gives the very definition of the faith that it then explains how it changed people's lives, exactly what we're doing here with Joseph. And it says this, Faith is confidence in what we hope for, the promises of God, which have been handed down to us, confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. That's what faith is. That's what Joseph had. That's why he could respond the way he did. Because he had a genuine faith from God as a gift. To the world, Jesus Christ was the illegitimate son of Mary, a sectarian religious leader, a rabble-rouser who was executed as a criminal by the Roman Empire. But by faith, we are able to see beyond the physical to what is spiritually true. And we are, we are able by faith to see that Jesus is the great seed of Abraham, the son of Abraham. He is the son of David who would take the throne over David's kingdom and reign over God's kingdom forever. He is the promised Messiah, the virgin-born one who died on the cross for our deliverance to free us from the guilt from the penalty, from the power, and the consequences of sin, even death itself. And we see him by faith, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, reigning even right now as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We see that by faith. It is as real as this pulpit. It's real. It's true. And you can live your life on the basis of it. I'll never forget, it was exactly... 40 years ago this Christmas season that I received the gift of faith, the best gift I've ever received. Up until then, I was a church-going kid. I was a good kid. But I didn't have real faith. My faith was a hypocritical faith. It was just as hypocritical as my father's. But somehow, the Holy Spirit awakened my soul, gave me eyes to see, 
and I sat down to read the Word of God because my mother always pointed me to the Word of God for answers. I started reading the Bible, and as I read for the first time in my life, the lights turned on. I understood. I saw Jesus by faith for who he claimed to be. I understood what the cross meant, what it meant for me and my salvation. And by Christmas that year, all I asked for was a big old cross to hang around my neck and a big Bible to carry under my arm. That's all I wanted for Christmas, and I knew that I'd been changed. And for 40 years, I've been walking with two kinds of sight, physical sight and spiritual sight, the faith that saves, and I'm so thankful for it. And I pray that you know that faith as well. If you don't, it's a gift. All you have to do is ask for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of faith. We didn't have it as we were born into this world. We couldn't have bought it, we couldn't have worked for it, we couldn't have earned it. But by your grace, you gave it to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for opening our eyes to see. Thank you that we see Christ as the virgin-born, miraculous, fully God, fully man, redeemer of mankind. Thank you that we see him risen from the dead and ascended to your right hand. Thank you that we see him as Lord of Lords, as King of Kings. This is all a gift from you. May we be strengthened in our faith. May our eyesight become more clear. May we see spiritual truth as it's revealed in your word, as, as, as real or more real than what we see with our physical eyes, that we might glorify your name and be more like our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.